This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Tables listeners. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, as usual, we have a great show lined up for you. And uh, I'm happy to welcome Jay Spiegel back to the show. Jay, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I just want to take a quick time out and say thank you so much for listening um, and being patient with our broadcast this past couple weeks. As some of you know, it's been a very busy time of year for me with my Royal College exam. And as a result, we've had to play a couple of replay episodes. And uh, and a big thank you to Dr. Fraser Pollard and uh, Dr. Ashley Manuk for stepping in and taking over the show for one of the weeks as well. Um, As well, you heard Amol Verma and uh, Fahad Razak do the same for me. So big thank yous all around. And with that, let's jump right into our show. Jay, why don't you take us through the article that you chose for this week. Uh, Sure, I chose an article recently published in the BMJ in April that looked at the harms related to short-term use of oral corticosteroids. Well, I can say I definitely prescribe short-course oral corticosteroids on a very frequent basis. What is the bottom line for this article? I'm interested to know. So the bottom line of this article is in a a retrospective cohort study of 1.5 million patients, Short-term corticosteroids were received by 20% of the cohort and were associated with increased risk of sepsis, fracture, and venous thromboembolism. Yikes. A lot of bad outcomes, but we know that steroids are a dangerous drug. Jay, frame this study for us in the broader context of the literature or perhaps why you chose it out of personal interest. So uh, I think it's somewhat along the lines of what you were mentioning. Steroids are important and ubiquitous medications. And the side effects of long-term use are well-known and often reviewed. But I would say that my thoughts, and, and I'm perhaps others, was that short-term corticosteroids were relatively benign. So I was interested to see what this article would have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly say there are a few mild to moderate risks I would counsel patients on with short-term, especially short-term high-dose steroids. But certainly this study uh, in the bottom line you introduced mentions some fairly significant adverse effects. And so I'm interested to find out more about this study and what it's all about. So Jay, take us through the methods now, break it down for us. How did they conduct this cohort study? Uh, So this study was designed as a retrospective cohort study, uh, looking at patients who received and didn't receive steroids uh, over a three-year study period. Then they also took patients who received steroids and did a self-control case series on those patients. So information about these patients was obtained from a a database of a nationwide insurer of patients in the U.S. and they matched their demographic information as well as their pharmacy information and then compared their outcomes using ICD-10 codes for sepsis and venous thromboembolism and fracture. And so just as sort of simply as you can, What is a self-controlled case uh, series uh, for our listeners? So a self-controlled case series uses the individual themselves uh, as a control and looks at at the risk of a given outcome before the exposure and after the exposure, as opposed to perhaps other case control series where they try to find a matched patient that's not the exact same person. Brilliant. And where did this study take place again? So this was using uh, U.S. uh, insurer data. So it was across the entire United States. Okay. And what were the patients that they included in this study? How did they pick them or exclude them from their their cohort? The inclusion criteria were people between the ages of 18 and 64. uh, And that's because I think they were going to miss claims for patients that were over 65 that qualified for Medicare. 
Uh, and then other exclusion criteria were patients who had received corticosteroids in the year prior to the time of the study, patients who had received only non-oral steroids or budesonide, or patients who had malignancy or previous transplants. So to put it simply, they wanted a cohort of adults under the age of 65 who were exposed to oral corticosteroids, probably most commonly prednisone. Is that about did I about capture it? Uh, yes, and they wanted to look at uh, patients who received less than 30 days of steroids over a three-year period to be, quote-unquote, short-term. Short-term. Fantastic. So just take us through the formal exposure. I mean, it sounds like it's steroids, but just, just give us a bit more detail about that. Sure. The exposure was specifically outpatient steroids. And again, they were just looking at any use that totaled less than 30 days. And it didn't matter what type of oral steroid it was. They just converted it all to prednisone equivalents. Okay. And, and really, what was their primary question? What were they trying to hope to look at here? Sure. So the primary outcome was the 5 to 90 day incidence of sepsis, which they looked at through the code for hospital admission for sepsis, venous thromboembolism, or fracture. And they combined patients who received corticosteroids versus patients who did not receive corticosteroids. Now, sepsis makes sense to me. Fracture makes sense to me with the risks of osteoporosis um, and immune suppression. But venous thromboembolism, where does the sort of biological plausibility of the evidence come around for that? They actually discussed that, and they acknowledged that they didn't really have a great direct mechanism. They were postulating perhaps immune changes could make you more thrombotic. But it is acknowledged basically on the package insert that uh, receiving corticosteroids is a risk for venous thromboembolism, despite the fact that I don't think we have, per se, a great idea on the biochemical mechanism for it. That sounds like an appropriate uh, research question, then, to look at that uh, potential uh, adverse outcome. All right. Well, take us through the results. What did they find? So I think, first and foremost, what I found most astonishing was that 21% of patients received at least one course of steroids over three years. So that's an incidence of 7% of people a year getting steroids, which I thought was a, a, an incredibly high number. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people, but I guess if it's a commonly prescribed medication, there it is. Yeah, I guess so. Um, the median number of, of days that patients used steroids were six, and the median dose equivalent was uh, 20 milligrams of prednisone a day, though 25% of patients received greater than 40 milligrams a day. And do they indicate what the what the, the so-called indications for the prednisone were? Yeah, they did. So the most common conditions were either upper respiratory or lower respiratory tract infections, allergic, quote-unquote, and then spinal or disc disorders. Okay, so probably your bulk of your patients are COPD exacerbations or asthma. You get a few people with some concerns around spinal cord compression, I suppose. And, uh, and then maybe an anaphylactic or allergic type reaction. So they actually did stratify patients both by respiratory and MSK conditions, like these spinal conditions, but also rheumatoid conditions. And they found that exposure to corticosteroids still was a, an important risk factor for uh, the outcomes that they were looking at. So let's, let's look at those outcomes. What, what were the risks um, and the, you know, the quantifiable risks and what were they related to in, with regards to exposure to steroids? Sure. So they looked at the incidence rates first and they were higher for users of corticosteroids. For example, in sepsis, 0.05% versus 0.02%. 
so uh, an appreciable increase. And that was similarly seen across venous thromboembolism and fracture. So incidence use across the board were higher for, for all three outcomes that they were looking at. And then when they looked at the self-control case series, the rates of sepsis were five times higher post using steroids uh, as in the days previous for venous thromboembolism was three times and for fracture almost double within the first 30 days of use. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. If you're trying to compare two people who are not the same individual together as in a cohort study, those people are not necessarily the same at baseline despite the best efforts at matching them. So perhaps, you know, individual A has a higher risk for developing infection than individual B when exposed to steroids. It's possible. And then similarly within the self-controlled case series approach, you know, they get steroids in some contexts for an infective type exacerbation and then they end up developing infection or potentially the the doctors got the diagnosis wrong. Uh, They thought it was a, say, an asthma exacerbation and it turned out it was a pneumonia and the steroids just made things worse. So I don't know, what, what, what do you think, Jay? Are there holes or, that I'm finding, or is it just banter that I'm putting on the air here? Well, I, th- I think the first thing that you pointed out is definitely uh, true in that they did find that the patients who used steroids did have greater comorbidities. They were a little bit older. So I think looking at the cohort study, there could possibly be reasons for why those people might have had more risk of these outcomes. But they did try and do sensitivity analyses to try and control for what you're saying, though obviously you can't you know, completely eradicate that. But they, they tried to not look at any incidence of sepsis, for example, in the first four days and then a sensitivity analysis out to seven days to try and account for the fact that, well, perhaps this person got corticosteroids for what might have been uh, you know, uh, an asthma exacerbation, but really they had pneumonia. So they were really trying to isolate something that happened after the fact and not really accounting for the initial presentation to the clinic in the first place. Yeah, and I, I mean, absolutely. It's, there's always a risk of, you know, confounding in, in observational studies, but it's also a real-world study, and we're looking at real-world effects of these drugs on people. And I think, you know, you just sort of you take it in balance, and, uh, and I, I definitely think it's interesting, especially because all of the effects are present in the same direction, right? So it, it lends credence to that. It's a real phenomenon that we're seeing as a consequence of steroids. Um, did they give you any sense of timing uh, of these outcomes? So uh, definitely when they looked at the self-control case series, rates were much higher in the first 30 days and then tapered off consequently as you went further out to 90. So it was definitely closer to the exposure. But they did also point out that they didn't really see much of a dose-response curve as well, which they also thought was a bit interesting. Because you would kind of assume that, you know, if your risk of sepsis, for example, would be worse if you had greater immunosuppression, but they actually didn't find that. Yeah, I mean, the the counterpoint to that, though, could be that your... um immunosuppression occurs at a certain threshold of steroid dosage and beyond that you don't get further immune suppression so to speak but uh, but uh, I'm not an expert in that area so I'm not really sure I can comment further. Uh, Jay anything else interesting you wanted to point out in this study? So um, I think uh, just a, a couple of quick things I mean they they also mentioned that only six percent of doses were less than 17 uh, and a half milligrams a day so they really weren't looking at low-dose steroids. I don't know that there's necessarily enough to make comments about patients on 10 milligrams, for example. 
Um, and I also noticed that when they did stratify people by, uh, you know, for example, MSK conditions and respiratory conditions, while they did see that the effects remained across groups, uh, there was a much greater effect size uh, in the MSK group, which, you know, suggests to me that there is uh, an element of what the actual comorbidity is. Like, for example, if somebody has RA or psoriatic arthritis, you know, the, the effect size was, has a ratio was 12.9 versus like 3. So, you know, there, there does seem to be a difference between the actual comorbidities as well. So I think that's something that also should be mentioned. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so what do you think? On the balance of uh, pros and cons in this study, is this something that uh, you take to your practice with you and you believe, or you're, you're not convinced yet? I think it's, a, it's definitely an eye-opener for me. Uh, I think what I would take from it is the importance of knowing why you're giving steroids. And I think that was what the authors were trying to point out as well. It's not that you shouldn't give somebody with COPD short-course steroids. You know, things that we know there are evidence for, you should go ahead and give steroids. But if, you know, uh, their point was a lot of the prescriptions for steroids uh, they've noticed are not necessarily for conditions with bona fide uh, evidence-based medicine reasons for prescription. And I think, you know, with this amount of risk, I think we should probably maybe think twice before we, we go forward with giving steroids. All right. So what do you think the main takeaway learning points for our listeners are here? Yeah, so I think that the, the main takeaway is that short-term corticosteroids are not benign and they do have small but appreciable risks in sepsis, uh, venous thromboembolism as well as fracture. Uh, and there could be other risks that just weren't studied here as well that would need further study. Yeah, definitely a dangerous medication never to be taken lightly, but effective uh, in many of its uses. Thank you, Jay. I really enjoyed that article, and, and thanks for bringing it to the show. Hello, listeners. We are back again with a special segment on the rounds table. I'm Emily Hughes, and I'm joined by Shaliza Halani, and we are both medical students at the University of Toronto. Today, we are going to talk about the 2016 Canadian Cardiovascular Society Guidelines of Perioperative Cardiac Risk Assessment and Management for Patients Undergoing Non-Cardiac Surgery. Wow, that is definitely a mouthful. Shaliza, tell me, why are these guidelines important? Thanks, Emily, for the introduction, and hello to all our listeners. So let me tell you a little bit about the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, or the CCS guidelines. So post-operative myocardial infarction is common. More than 10 million of the 200 million patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery each year suffer major cardiac complications. These can include cardiac death, cardiac arrest, and MIs. Detection of these events is challenging because typical symptoms are masked by anesthetics, analgesia, and other post-operative complications such as delirium. These complications increase overall morbidity, prolong hospital stays, increase costs, and impact patient prognoses. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about what the old guidelines were and what the impetus was for this change? So the old guidelines that we are following were the 2014 ACCAHA guidelines, also known as the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association. The guidelines we are currently talking about today are the 2016 Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines created by the CCS Guidelines Committee. 
So this committee and other experts in the field created this updated set of guidelines for patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery by creating focus groups and searching the literature to reflect the challenges in identifying perioperative cardiac events. So what are the key differences between these new guidelines and the old guidelines? So the three key differences that I want to highlight today are the elimination of self-reported metabolic equivalents, also known as METs, the use of brain natriuretic peptide, or BNP, to risk stratify, and post-operative troponin monitoring. Okay, great. It's nice that you can break it down that easily for us. Tell me first about the decision to eliminate the self-reported MET score. The 2014 ACC-AHA guidelines recommend assessing patients' self-reported functional status to assign a MET score to guide perioperative cardiac risk assessment. Previously, it was thought that patients with reduced functional status preoperatively were at increased risk of complications, and likewise those with good functional status preoperatively were at a lower risk. However, two studies have evaluated patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. Interestingly, both found that patients' self-reported meds did not predict perioperative cardiovascular complications. Very interesting. So therefore, there aren't recommendations on how to use self-reported meds, and it has therefore been removed from the perioperative assessment. However, a prospective study evaluating physicians' assessment of METs and its prognostic capability is scheduled to be released in 2017. I'll definitely keep my eye out for that study. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, the new decisions around preoperative measurement of cardiac biomarkers. For sure. So in patients who are greater than or equal to 65 years of age or are 45 to 64 years of age with significant cardiovascular disease, or have a revised cardiac risk score index of greater than or equal to 1, it is recommended to measure BNP or N-terminal fragment pro-BNP, also known as NT-pro-BNP, before surgery. And the idea behind this is that it enhances perioperative cardiac risk estimation. What are the key thresholds that we need to be aware of with regards to BNP or pro-BNP? So there are some important values to keep in mind. An NT-pro-BNP less than 300 nanograms per liter or a BNP less than 92 milligrams per liter results in a risk of 4.9%, whereas values greater than these thresholds suggest risk estimates of cardiac death or MI to be 21.8%. Okay, so are there any other cardiac tests that have been used in comparison with BNP? So various trials have been performed to assess other cardiac tests in comparison to the risk estimation calculated with the RCRI also known as the Revised Cardiac Risk Index, and NT-pro-BNP or BNP measurements. From these trials, the recommendations are actually against performing things like preoperative echocardiograms, coronary CT angiograms, exercise stress tests, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, or pharmacological stress testing, also called non-invasive cardiac stress tests. Great. So can you tell us next about the last key point you mentioned on the recommendation for serial post-operative troponin monitoring? So the recommendation actually says to measure daily troponins at time 0, 24, and 48 to 72 hours after non-cardiac surgery in patients with a particular risk, that being a baseline risk greater than 5% for cardiovascular death or non-fatal myocardial infarction at 30 days after surgery. The reasoning behind this is that most myocardial infarctions occur within 48 hours of non-cardiac surgery, but symptoms are often masked, usually because of the fact that patients are receiving analgesics. 65% of patients suffering perioperative MIs do not experience typical ischemia symptoms. The previous guidelines recommended measuring troponin levels in the setting of 
signs and symptoms that are suggestive of myocardial ischemia or MIs. However, now that we know that asymptomatic MIs are associated with a risk of 30-day mortality, similar to that of symptomatic MIs, it's actually been demonstrated in the largest prospective international cohort study called the VISION study that an elevation in troponin T in the postoperative period is the strongest predictor of 30-day mortality. Oh, wow, that's a really interesting finding. For sure, and it's also been shown that a troponin elevation was an independent predictor of all-cause mortality at one year post-surgery. Wow. Okay, I think I have a pretty good idea now of the changes that have been made from the old guidelines to the new guidelines. So my question is now, when do we need to do this preoperative risk assessment? In urgent or emergent situations, the recommendations have not changed. Individuals should proceed to surgery and only undertake preoperative cardiac assessment in urgent cases with unstable cardiac conditions or suspected undiagnosed severe pulmonary hypertension or obstructive cardiac disease. Preoperative cardiac risk assessment is recommended in those who are undergoing elective non-cardiac surgery, who are greater than or equal to 45 years of age, or 18 to 44 years of age with known significant cardiovascular disease. Wow, I think that was a great summary for me and hopefully everybody else listening. Shaliza, thank you so much. Let's uh, move on now and take you through the article that I chose for the week. This was about preventing the recurrence of C. difficile diarrhea and colitis. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine uh, earlier this year in February, and it's looked at uh, vancomycin versus flagell in its treatment uh, and uh, recurrence of C. difficile. So what is the bottom line for this article, Kieran? Well, in this cohort study of individuals who developed C. difficile colitis, there was no difference in the risk of recurrence between patients treated with vancomycin versus metronidazole. However, among patients with severe infections, Those treated with vancomycin had a significantly lower risk of death than patients treated with metronidazole. So that means that vancomycin really should be considered first-line therapy for patients who present with severe C. diff uh, infection. Okay, so uh, could you put uh, this article in terms of broader context? What new does it add to uh, C. diff knowledge? Yeah, Jay, I mean, general consensus has been reached in prior studies on what the first-line treatment for C. difficile colitis should be when you stratify individuals into severe versus non-severe. But when you look at rates of clinical cure across all presenting severities of C. difficile, vancomycin is clearly superior. Uh, And therefore, the downstream consequences of achieving clinical cure when you're considering recurrence or mortality even might differ. Recurrence of C. difficile occurs somewhere between 15 and 50% of individuals, depending on the study you look at, and up to 40% of individuals die within the first 30 days of infection. So it's a, it's a serious infection that has a high rate of recurrence. Now, that, those consequences of recurrence and the differences in treatments really hasn't been robustly studied. Um, and so this study tried to really answer that, uh, to look at vancomycin versus metronidazole and downstream consequences of recurrence. Um, and then I just want to put it in perspective to you just how serious C. difficile is. So in the U.S. in 2011, the data that, that we have some clear numbers for, there were 450,000 new cases of C. difficile infection with 83,000 recurrences. So we're talking about a lot of diarrhea to deal with that comes a lot with a lot of morbidity and mortality. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty high number as well. And definitely an important thing to look at. So uh, what was the design of the study and where did it take place? 
So this was a retrospective cohort study that used propensity matching, which we've talked about previously on, on the show, but basically it looks at a bunch of different factors of an individual and their propensity or their likelihood to receive a treat a particular treatment. And in, in an essence, it's used in, to try to help sort of mimic a randomized control trial in a setting that's not randomized to help balance your patients uh, equally. It looked at patients that were in the U.S. and that were treated for C. difficile infection, which they defined simply as a positive laboratory test for the presence of C. difficile toxins uh, or toxin genes in a stool sample. And this was between the years of 2005 through to 2012. The last thing I'll say just about the design and their outcomes was that as far as recurrence, uh, they define that as uh, this, a second positive laboratory test for C. difficile toxins that occurred within eight weeks of the initial diagnosis, but it had to occur after a minimum of 14 days. So it, it sort of, you got your treatment, you were supposed to be cured, and then it uh, recurred rather than just you're still measuring a positive toxin within a two-week period. Okay. And who were the patients included in the study? Well, they used administrative data from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, commonly used a health administrative uh, research database. You were excluded from the study if you weren't treated with either antibiotic, that's vancomycin or metronidazole, or if you received both of those antibiotics, since that you wouldn't therefore be able to compare one versus the other if you received both, so they, they took them out. They had no minimum treatment duration required for inclusion into the study. And, you know, this may be important since if you died within a few days of receiving treatment um, and say you received vancomycin because you had severe disease, then that might make vancomycin look worse than it is as far as an outcome uh, uh, data data that they might uh, measure. So what was the primary research question? Well, really, they were looking to evaluate the risk of recurrence and all-cause 30-day mortality among patients receiving metronidazole or vancomycin for the treatment of mild to moderate and severe C. difficile infection. Now, how did they define that severity? Because there's been a few different scoring systems used. They used it according to the criteria and the joint practice guidelines of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, as well as the Infectious Disease Society of America. So that's basically, you have an elevated white blood cell count, um, you have an elevated serum creatinine, and those abnormalities are within four days of a diagnosis of C. difficile infection. So uh, just to clarify, do they have to have a negative C. diff toxin in between? No, and that's, I think that's an important point that you bring up, Jay, because as many of you know, you can have a positive C. difficile toxin test even up to, I think it's about three months after your infection, uh, even though you may not have any clinical symptoms. Well, keeping that in mind, so what were the main findings of this study? So just over 47,000 patients developed uh, C. difficile infection and were treated with one of vancomycin or metronidazole in this cohort. Only 2,000, which is about 4%, were actually treated with vancomycin. So the large majority were treated with metronidazole. They matched those 2,000 patients to uh, who received vancomycin to 8,000 patients who, re- who received metronidazole. They were able to, to match them those numbers. So overall, the study looked at about 10,000 patients who were similar enough and received either vancomycin or metronidazole for different severity of disease. So they broke those groups up into severe versus non-severe, and about five, just over 5,000 had mild to moderate disease, whereas about 3,000 patients had severe disease within that cohort of 10,000 patients. 
how many of the uh, mild to moderate had got vancomycin? Of the 2,000 patients who received vancomycin in the end, in the end cohort, about half of them, so about 1,100, uh, received vancomycin for mild to moderate disease. So uh, what did they find about the outcomes then, about recurrence and mortality? Yeah, there were actually no differences in the risk of recurrence between patients who were either treated with vancomycin versus those who were treated with metronidazole in any of the severe uh, disease severity cohorts. So it didn't matter if you had mild disease, moderate disease, or severe disease. The treatment with either vanco or metronidazole made no difference on your risk of recurrence. I think perhaps one of the more interesting findings is that among patients with any severity of C. difficile, so just anybody who has a C. difficile infection, if you were treated with vancomycin overall, you were 15% less likely to die, which is about 2, 2% absolute difference uh, between metronidazole and vancomycin, a 15% relative risk. So, you know, it seems like vancomycin is more effective as far as mortality for any severity of C. difficile. That seems a bit surprising that um, they found no difference in rates of recurrence, but such a large difference in mortality. Did they uh, try to explain that? Well, I think part of the result is buried within, you know, grouping people into any severity of C, of C. difficile, because really, if you sort of looked at it in a bit more detail, if you looked at patients with mild to moderate C. difficile infection, there's no difference there in mortality between flagell and, and vancomycin. But if you looked at patients with severe disease, that's where the, the driver of the mortality risk with vancomycin was, uh, was present. So I think that kind of confirms what we already know, that sort of treatment of severe C. difficile infection with vancomycin is a superior uh, treatment than, than metronidazole. Sure. And I, I think that's definitely important. I just think it's also interesting that uh, it's better for clinical cure, but it somehow doesn't change your risk of getting it again, which I, I think is just important to kind of bear in mind, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's a fairly big study, like there's lots of patients, they have, you know, a lot of cases of C. difficile infection, so it's unlikely that it's an underpowered study. Um, I think it just sort of leaves a few questions in the air. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any other interesting points or observations you wanted to make? I just thought it interesting to point out that this was primarily a study of looking at individuals with their very, very first ever episode of C. difficile infection, about 85% of individuals in this, it was their first. And as we know, you know, proton pump inhibitors are, uh, are a bad apple when it comes to risk of C. diff. 75% of the people in this uh, cohort had received a PPI uh, prior to developing uh, their infection. So uh, that's uh, to keep in mind, as we already know. Uh, are there any important limitations of this study we haven't discussed? I, I think we've already talked about most of them. I think if I put it all out on a balance of strength and weaknesses, I think, you know, overall, it's, it's an eye-catching study. It's well-conducted. You know, the use of the propensity matching, which is you see more and more these days, helps adjust for baseline differences when you're talking about differences in severity of C. difficile infection. Um, I'm not sure how much it adds to our overall knowledge, but I think it definitely reaffirms that, that vancomycin is a superior medication when it comes to C. Dif at least severe C. difficile infection. Great. Thanks for bringing that up, Karen. Well, Jay, uh, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we're reading about. Jay, what's catching your attention this week in the news? Well, uh, I just finished a rotation on, on ICU in one of our 
uh, academic hospitals, and it happens to be a trauma hospital. Uh, and I was reading an article on the, the Huffington Post, and it was titled, What Bullets Do to Bodies. And um, this uh, reporter followed the head of general surgery and trauma at Temple uh, in Philadelphia, where they have uh, lots of gun violence. In fact, they see more than one uh, gunshot wound victim a day. And I think it's an eye-opening thing that, uh, you know, we usually think about how trauma surgeons do amazing things and they, they save people from, uh, from dying. But I think uh, a large part of what this article focused on is that, you know, that's not the end of the story. And the things that they have to do uh, to, to save a life can sometimes leave people uh, with, you know, significant morbidity that lasts them for the rest of their lives. Um, and I think no matter where you stand on kind of the gun control debate, either here or in the United States, I think this is an article that really gives you pause, you know, about, about what it really involves, regardless of, of what the actual mortality numbers really look like. Mm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mine's uh, a little more lighthearted for this week, but um, fitting for our show because, you know, when we're recording and we're on air, we have to be somewhat cognizant of the number of uhs, ums, uh, and different words that we choose. So I, re- I came across an article in The Atlantic um, that talked about whether there were gender and sex differences in the use of uh and um, um and as it turns out, there are. Uh, so it turns out men in general say uh more often than women who have a tendency to say um. Uh, and why that is, they're not really sure. But it was shown across different, all different age strata from anywhere from you know age 20 to age 70 that men in general seem to say uh, uh and women say um. And interestingly, they counterbalance each other. So men will be far less likely to say uh in the presence of a woman and likewise a woman will be less likely to say um in the presence of a man compared to uh, another woman who was who would say it not in the presence of a man so i just thought it was kind of interesting and inapplicable to uh, to the stuff that we do on the rounds table when we're recording and watching our language so to speak yes watching our language indeed karen well thanks jay always a pleasure having you on the show and uh, this is the last episode for the season, so thank you for having for coming on the rounds table for the year. We we really enjoyed your presence and your insightful uh, choice of articles and comments about them. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I hope we can keep doing it next year. Absolutely, we look forward to having you back on the show. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca/theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast thanks for joining us this week who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week 